0: Good morning. So I hope that you had a chance to buy these books. We're going to take a break after today from Romans because next week is Palm Sunday and after that is Easter. So you have several weeks in case you want to get back into it. Also, this is a really good breaking point in the book of Romans since we're ending the first part uh, today. We're starting a new section of the book of Romans. So you can buy these on Amazon. I think they're six bucks um anybody bought one is that true there's are they six bucks but okay they're seven bucks so what they are is just the book of romans plus there's pages that you can journal in and take notes in on the sermon and all of the sermons that you will hear in this church are going through a book of the bible whether it's myself or hansen or jacob that are preaching so it would be worth the investment um to, to be good students because As the saying goes, to pray well is to study well, to study well is to be well. So um, this is the last time I'm gonna make a pitch for that. Uh, Also, I wanna remind you, in case you weren't here during the announcement time, that tonight at six o'clock, we're having a congregational meeting to elect elders. Three elders are up for election or re-election. I seriously am concerned that we won't have a quorum. If we have a quorum, it'll be a short meeting, a half an hour, I would guess. If we don't have a quorum, it will be much shorter. But, I, but make an effort, if you are a voting member of this church, make an effort to be here tonight um, for voting for our elders. It's an important part of our church, and again, we're not voting who we like the most. Our vote is, do we determine this to be the man that God is raising up for this position? That's our ultimate choice here. Is this God's man for the church today, not our, do we think this guy's done a good job and does he deserve a promotion, but is this the one the Holy Spirit is leading? So do your work ahead of time. Um, Do some time praying about this, and please come tonight. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank You again that we have this opportunity to come before You to study Your Word and to join with our brothers and sisters to give You praise and worship. And it is as we learn more about You and as Your view, as our view of You being a great God grows, we are able to worship You better because we are worshiping God for who you are and not how we perceive you to be or wish you to be and so to that God, I pray that you'd help us to grow in our understanding of you today as we look into your word and as a consequence we would worship you in a more amazing and fitting way and to this end, please speak to us by your holy Spirit we ask in Jesus name amen so did, did any of you follow the uh, murders uh, Alex Murda on on the news this last month or so I have to confess I did not I was totally disinterested honestly because I'm thinking why is the whole world watching this one murder unravel because we have good murders in local areas too but the whole the whole world seems to be watching this one murder trial like on the Hunger Games when everybody's watching the 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 Hunger Games unfold and so I I was kind of put off that every time I turned the news on, national news, no matter what it was, they're telling me about the Murdoch murders in South Carolina. Anybody follow that? So a a couple weeks ago, uh, um, my family, we were going to Eastern Washington for Connie's mom's funeral and Jessica was riding with me and she brought it up. Have you been watching the Murdoch murder? And I'm thinking, one more person. Okay. So I scoffed at her. A little bit. But uh, she got me curious, and so I started looking into it this week, and uh, it was very intriguing. And the more you get into it, the more intriguing the story goes, and uh, and the more things you find uh, as, the, as you dig into it. So at the center of the story is 54-year-old Alex Murdoch. He and his family have been the 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 justice of South Carolina in this one area for the last hundred years. Um, they, they dominated the legal landscape for that long. But um, recently, uh, actually it was two years ago, the story begins uh, June 7th, 2021, when Alex Murdoch calls 911 and he reports that, that his uh, his wife and his son have been murdered. And so here the story begins. He reports that, uh, that, that they've been shot to death. And for for the whole year, they don't have any suspects. They have no motive. They have no one to even to think about. And they're, and they're befuddled about who to, uh, to charge with these murders. In the meantime, dun, 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 Alex is in jail on a completely unrelated charge. It seems that um, he... Uh, he's been embezzling money from his law firm. He's been cheating his clients out of money to the tune of $8.8 million. So he, uh, as, as things go on, there's three more deaths that are in near proximity to Alex Murdoch, and it's this bizarre scheme which terminates with his apparent attempted suicide. So he he calls 911 to say he's just been shot in the head while he's changing a tire in his car, and as and as it turns out, uh, he, he was not alone, and he's either been staging this suicide to get out of the charges, or he meant to kill this guy because he's been giving him money, you know, just under ten thousand dollars in these dribblings amount to, to keep to, to make it look like he's the guilty party, but things start to fall apart, his cousin says, I wasn't trying to murder, wait, I wasn't trying to murder him. If I was trying to murder him, he'd be killed, (laughs) but anyway. (laughs) So uh, Murdoch then comes up with this fancy explanation that he's been addicted to painkillers, and so he apologizes to everyone. Meanwhile, Murdoch is charged with uh, insurance fraud, uh, conspiracy to commit insurance fraud, filing a false police report. Then it turns out that uh, he's taken out an insurance policy on his property. One month, one month after he takes out this insurance policy, his housekeeper falls over backwards down the stairs and kilts herself. He files, he sues himself for $4.3 million, knowing the insurance company's going to pay for it, in, in representing her sons. Who get nothing? He keeps the whole amount of money, so that's when everything starts to look in on him. What actually happened was, he shot his son at close range with a 12 gauge shotgun several times, and then he uses a 300 blackout. It's an AR-15 modified to 30 caliber to shoot his wife a whole bunch of times while she's running away. This guy is a total dirtbag, and everybody would have to agree whatever he gets, he deserves. Now let me take you to another courtroom, a different place, a different time. It's future, but it's not fiction. This actually happens, and you are the one who will be on trial. Second Corinthians 5.10 we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what's due him for the things done in this life, whether good or bad. When you stand before the judgment seat, what is the evidence going to show? And when you stand before the judgment seat, are there going to be other people that are standing to give testimony to your life? Because here is Satan, who is the accuser of the brethren. And He's continually accusing you of the faults that you have, of the sins that you commit. You will stand before the judgment seat. But the problem is not just that we're guilty. The problem is that we have accusers who continually testify to the sins we are committing even today. Obviously, we have Satan who's, who's watching our sins and is reminding the Father continually of, that we're not fit to be saved. We're not fit to have his grace stand upon us but but more than that there's other people that are constantly accusing you in this life they don't know your heart they don't know your motives they can't see what your life is all about but they stand ready to accuse you because perhaps they have been the victim of your behavior or they've just been the observer of your behavior beyond that of course you have your own conscience which continually convicts you of sin you failed you did something completely inappropriate for a, for a Christian. So we have this uh, accusations. And the problem with these accusations is, by and large, they're true. These things really are true of us. And we really are worthy of condemnation. We really did fail. The things that they say about, they may be unfair, but they're not untrue. So you're, you may think, well... I'm not all that bad of a person. I haven't murdered anyone recently, you know, so I don't deserve to be treated like these other guys. But the point that I'm saying is that you may think that you're a good person and that if you weigh the balances, you'll come out ahead. But I'm telling you, you're not. And you will stand convicted if the point is, did you do this or not? You are guilty and you are worthy of condemnation. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans 8. Uh, we'll begin in 8.31. Like I said, we're, this is kind of the closing arguments that Paul is making, not just of chapter 8. He's summarizing chapter 8 here. But really, this is the summation of everything that Paul has been saying from the beginning of this book of Romans up until now, but especially having to do with the summation of his statement he made in uh, 5.8. Um but God's love is shown for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that's the point that he's, he's summing up, the, this justification by faith. So he's, he's bringing together all of what he has been saying in the first eight chapters of the book. Romans eight thirty one: What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul begins by saying, what shall we say to these things. And so we'd have to ask right away, what things is Paul referring to when he says these things? If, you, if, you're, if he's just summarizing the last um, part of Romans 8, um, 28 through 29, he's, he's talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, but perhaps he's including much more. If it's the whole book of Romans up until now, if it's the first eight chapters, remember he teaches first about the, the sinfulness of man, secondly about the salvation of God, the hope of the Christian... And now he talks about, in Romans 8, he begins by saying, no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. Then he begins to talk about the provision of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, the sovereignty of God and salvation. I'm tempted to think, inclined to think, that that's his point here as he's talking about God's sovereignty and salvation in the last couple of verses. He says, what shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? So, here's a connective question, what shall we say in response to these things? And if Paul had continued, who can be against us, what shall we say in these things, who can be against us? We would say, lots of people, lots of things can be against us. All kinds of things are, in fact, against us, obviously Satan is against us, unbelievers are against us, sometimes fellow Christians are against us, so we could add to the list um, disease or sickness or aging or corruption or inflation, the state patrol is sometimes against us or the Department of Fish and Game or the IRS or ATF, although I kind of think alcohol and tobacco and firearm would be a good recipe for a party, but other than that, <laughs> The ATF can also be against us. All kinds of things can be against us, and rightly so. But look, that's not the question, is it? The question is not who could be against us, because we could answer lots of things and people can be against us. The question is, if God or since God is for us, then who could be against us? God is for his children, and the us that he's talking about are those who are saved. It's not the whole world. It's not everybody. It's not the lost. The, the us that he's referring to are his children. God is for his children. Look back to uh, 8, 28 through 30, where he, he talks about because God is for us, he has chosen us. He has predestined us to be conformed to his, the image of his son. He has called us. He has justified us. He, he, in his eyes, we have been glorified. We will be glorified All things are working together for our good for those who love the Lord. These are the things which are for us. This whole process of sanctification, this ultimate destiny that we will be adopted as sons and daughters, not just brought into His family, but brought to the point of honored position in the family. This is the good that God has proposed for us. It is summarized in to be made like Christ to be conformed into His image. That's what God is working for. This statement that God is for us can't just be interpreted in some nebulous way as if God's just waiting to do whatever makes you happy. God has a purpose in all that comes into our lives. The for us is to make us like Christ. And yet we have people in the prosperity gospel that say that, that God's purpose is to give you whatever you want, and, and God is just waiting anxiously for you to figure out what you like, and then tell him what he can do for you. That's blasphemous, as if God serves you. It's God's prerogative to decide for you what he considers is your good. It's not up to us to say, this is good, and whatever else is not good, we don't accept from God. So based on the premise that God is for us, Paul presses us on to consider these implications. If God is for us, who can be against us? And again, we recognize, well, all kinds of things can be against us, but the premise is since God is for us. I watched a, a show with Connie. It's a 1988 movie called The Bear. It's a good children's show in case you're looking for one. In the conclusion of the movie, this there's this tiny little orphaned grizzly bear cub who's being attacked by a mountain lion. Mountain lion's already winning the fight. He's already given the little grizzly a, a bloody nose and he's moving in for the kill. The little grizzly cub realizes he's done. He, there's nothing he can do because his enemy is so overpowering. This, this mountain lion is, is, is so ferocious. He stands up on his tiny little back legs and he, he gives the biggest ferocious growl he can. And the mountain lion starts to back away, and, and, and the mountain lion is now afraid. And you, the camera starts to pan back, and behind this tiny little mount, uh, a grizzly bear cub is this huge, full-size male grizzly on his back legs in this very menacing posture. So the point is that the little grizzly cub, you, are no match for the ferocious mountain lion, Satan. You are well outmatched. You have no defenses. What, what do you have to defend yourself against that? But the mountain lion, Satan, is no match for he who is with us, who is for us. Deus pro novice. God is for us. We have this tendency that we shrink back in fear. That the reality is that while we are no match for the enemy, the enemy is no match for God. With God for us, who can be against us? Verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So this is an argument from greatest to least, and he's just saying that God has given the supreme gift of salvation through His Son at the supreme cost of venting His anger, His holy wrath against His Son, of killing His Son in place of us. God struck down His own Son to pay for our sin. If God would do this extreme act of, of sacrificial love for us, what good thing would God withhold from us in the process of producing Christ-likeness in us. So, Paul asks rhetorically, you know, how will God not also with His Son also give us all things? And then again, we have to say, what things is God obligated to give to us? If God gave us the supreme thing of His Son, surely God wants me to have a convertible sports car. Surely God wants… I want Denise's sports car, by the way. That's a cool car. (laughs) Surely, you know God wants me to have a, a, a nice big yacht, Lawrence. And surely God wants me to have ten acres with a nice new house on it. Lauren, is your is your property on ten acres? Yeah. Okay. Surely God wants me to have all these good things. You know, surely God wants me to have fine clothes and health and wealth. And I'm thinking God wants me to have a sixty-four million dollar Lear jet. You know, who's that? Uh, uh, what? Uh, it was uh, one of the guys that looks like me right now with this thing on his face. Uh, uh, Kenneth Copeland, he wanted to have a, 60, a Gulfstream, a $64 million stream. Okay, surely God wants me to have all these things. What are these little things compared to the great gift that he gave when he gave me his son? As usual, God's not opposed to any of these things, but we have to look at the context. You know, what is God saying when He's going to supply all these things, all these lesser things in comparison to the gift of His Son? And the context has to do with struggle, has to do with the Christian suffering, has to do with hardship. What good things do we need? None of those things. The good things we need in those times are, are endurance. You look at verse 28, Paul has been encouraging believers who are struggling and, he's, and they're experiencing suffering. And verse 28 23, they groan inwardly, longing for this redemption, the revelation of, of God's sons, this adoption that we're looking forward to. What things do we need in times like that, in times of suffering? I mean, it's really great when somebody's going through suffering to remind them that uh, you may be going through the fire brother but you know you're going through is, what you go through is going to bring you out as refined gold and you say well that's fine but refined gold is pie in the sky by and by right now the suffering the fire seems terribly real at the moment i need to know that my sufferings that my struggle serve a definite purpose let me give you a preview here that Definite purpose in your struggling is not ultimately for you. That's why I gave a sermon recently. What if it's not about you? What if the suffering, what if the struggle was not ultimately about your victory? What if it served a much bigger purpose than that? Verse 33 Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God interceding for us. You know, we live in a very critical age, and we're very accustomed to people's accusations against Christians and against the church. People accuse Christians of being proud, uh, legalistic, gun-toting, anti-environmentalists. They accuse us of being hateful bigots because we don't affirm every moral decision that they make, especially in the area of sexual ethics. The church, largely that's, tr- that's really true of the, of the church from their point of view. The sinners know that Christians consider them sinners and they respond by saying that we as Christians are hypocrites. They they accuse us, I think rightly so, of being hypocrites because while we point the finger at their faults, we tend to overlook the faults that we have which are glaring in the church. We, we find these misdeeds quite tolerable. You know, I'm talking about pride and, and arrogance and self-righteousness and gossip and greed and gluttony. Of course, our our chief concern here is a much more serious indictment, and that is that our sins, our true sins, are the weightiest charge against us. And here we have Satan who stands before God and claims that our sins are so grievous that we are such treasonous followers that we don't deserve to stand in His presence. And we have this picture of the, the man who stands before God in his filthy rags. That's you. And God knows all those things about you. He knows that, in fact, you are unworthy, but he removes our sin and he gives us these clean garments. We are clothed in Christ. An accuser of the brethren may stand and cry out in anger. He may rightly, correctly accuse us of the sins we have committed and are guilty of, But here's the thing, God will not listen to him. The accuser accuses us, but God will not hear him because God has already laid upon Jesus our guilt, our sins. And Jesus has already paid for those sins at Calvary and God will not punish us a second time for the sins that have already been paid for. He won't cause them to be punished at Calvary and then hold us accountable for them too. We may have a ferocious accuser, but we have a very gracious God. I read a story some time ago that Max Lucado wrote. Uh, I don't really like his writing style, but I like the gist of this story. Anyway, Johnny, couldn't think of a better name than Johnny. Johnny is at his grandma's house, and he's fooling around with a slingshot, and he can't hit a thing. But he's walking back to his grandma's house, and he takes a rock, and he flings it, and he hits a duck her pet duck in the head, and he done killed that duck. And so the only thing you can do in a case like that is hide the evidence. So Johnny takes the duck and he hides it in the wood pile he looks up and his sister is looking at him. Well right after lunch that day, um, Grandma asks Sally if she'll wash the dishes and Sally says, Johnny wants to, don't you Johnny? Remember the duck. Well, over the next week, Johnny finds himself in front of the kitchen sink a lot more often than he would like to, sometimes because it's his duty, and sometimes because he's paying for his sin. Every time he starts to balk, his sister reminds him, Remember the duck. Finally, Johnny decides he's had enough. No punishment can be as bad as washing all these dishes. And so he then confesses to his grandmother. I shot and killed your duck and hid the body in the wood pile. And Grandma says, I know. I was standing at the window. I saw the whole thing. Because I love you, I forgave you. I was just wondering how long you were going to let your sister make a slave out of you. You know, that's kind of what happens to each one of us, too. You know your crime deserves for God to cancel your salvation you know what you've done is so bad you may have you may think that you've hidden the body in the wood pile and here you have an accuser who's always standing before god saying i saw and he's always whispering to you i know remember the duck and you remember continually your mistakes you replay them in your brain and you wonder Will God really forgive me of this? And you live with the stain and the consequences, and you say, if I'm suffering, if this has stained my life, how does God view these things? I want to tell you, don't listen to the accuser. Listen to the word of God. God's word says, God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who are these folk for whom God is for. Who are these hypocrites that Satan continually stands and accuses before God? Are they terrible mobsters? Are they murderers and criminals? No. These are, verse 33, these are those whom God has chosen. These are the ones God has elected to salvation. Paul has just been describing that these people and their sins, God has known from before creation. These are men and women whom God has foreknown before Satan was even created in his unsinful way. Before he fell. God knew you. He foreknew you. God had determined clear back before Satan's fall that you would be among the elect, that you would be predestined to be sons of God, that God would call you in His mercy, that God would justify you in His grace, that God would glorify you for His purposes. We're described as those who were chosen, elect, a designation that always indicates Who's taking the action here? Did you choose to be elect? No, the sovereign God before time. Satan is telling God something that he already knows. And God says, I know all this, and it's worse than that because God knows everything. And yet, God has determined, destined them to glory. See, that's Great security for us because we know what dirtbags we really are. But for God to know everything about us and still decide to enfold us, to wrap His cloak of love around us, what an amazing thing. We are the flock of whom the Good Shepherd declared, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. We are the ones when we cry out for help that the Lord helps us and shall not God avenge his own elect when they cry out to him day and night. See what comfort there is in this text to know that their reality is that Satan truthfully accuses us. We are guilty and yet we are not going to be held accountable for our sins. Because God has already satisfied, the punishment has been made. We're so deeply aware of the consequences of our sin, but like I said, God will not demand payment twice, the payment of the cross and, and ours. Verse 35, who, this word could also be translated what, same word, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation or distress? or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Uh, the Greeks often made these lists of of trials that wise men would then be successful in uh, overcoming lists of hardships, and that's what Paul is doing here. And we don't really need to spend a lot of time here because they're all pretty self-evident what he means, except maybe the word nakedness. The word nakedness here is not nudity, it's being without clothes. The point is that you are so poor, you're so destitute, you can't even provide adequate clothing for himself. And uh, juxtaposition here of persecution and sword is meant to remind us of martyrdom. Uh, Rome used the sword uh, as preferential for execution. And Paul adds this, this quote from Psalms 4, 44, 22. He says, it is written... For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We were regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. You might be tempted to think this is a digression. He's he's taking us elsewhere, or I'm trying to make a sub-point here, but not so. What he's trying to show us is this is the way it has always been for God's people. There's nothing new here. God's people have always been martyred for their faith. Believers suffer persecution, and the Roman church should take heed because they too would be... uh, suffering, persecution at the hands of, of, of Rome here. But Paul's feeling um, compelled here to establish that martyrdom is part of the prophetic datum for God's people. And, of course, this, is, this has been literally true throughout all time, and it is literally true today, though we don't see it. We are very insulated from this. Um, modern mission societies and international violations of human rights organizations have determined that today there are as many as 600,000 Christians yearly who are killed for their faith. That number is so great that we're tempted to just say, oh, that, it's a lot. But think of it in terms of this, 600,000 Christians killed every year is 200 times the number that were killed when the Twin Towers went down. It's three times, all of the casualties that have taken place in Ukraine, both from soldiers and civilians. It's more than all of the U.S. casualties during World War II. Every year, 600,000 Christians are being persecuted and killed for their faith. And Paul suggests that we are a sheep in the view of the world, only fit for slaughter. Verse 37 Here's where this story gets really interesting. So buckle up and wake up in case you're taking a nap right now. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Okay, we've just affirmed the fact that Christians are like sheep to the slaughter. They go silently and defenselessly. And yet, verse 37 says that we are more than conquerors. Well, those are two pretty opposite pictures here. Sheep to the slaughter and more than conquerors. It's, uh, it's really interesting because it, I don't like to do this very often, but in the Greek, there's this one word which just covers the five words here we are more than conquerors. Hyper, hooper, nicoamen. Uh, yeah, hooper, nicoamen. So you break that down, we, the word hooper, we get the word super and hyper from that word hooper, more than or excessive, like superman and super fun, you know, those are, we get that. And then the Nikoa, I man, the Nikoa is the word for struggle and victory. You know, in the, in the Louvre in Paris, there's a picture, there is a statue of the winged victory, and it's, and it is a Greek goddess called Nike. So the word Nike comes from this Nikoa, victory, so, so we are, We are victorious, super-victorious. But the question is begging what makes us, sheep who are fit for the slaughter, what makes us super-conquerors? Because that's what it literally means here. We are super-conquerors. Why are we super-conquerors? How can that possibly be? How can we who are despised and rejected and, and troubled and persecuted and exposed to famine and nakedness and danger and sword, how can that same group of people now be referred to as super-conquerors? Well, for a couple of reasons. The first reason, I think, is that we are super-victorious because we have a super-enemy. Like the picture of the mountain lion that I just gave you a few minutes ago, our, our enemy is super-human. We are, we are hard-pressed against an enemy who is more than, than human. And remember that in Ephesians, as Paul is concluding, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That's the enemy that we are struggling against. We have a supernatural struggle with a supernatural being. And so if we achieve victory over such a supernatural being, you can justly say that we are super-overcomers, super conquerors. The devil is the embodiment of these hostile forces that are arrayed against us. He's very cunning, and we would be wise to not underestimate Satan's strength. We are no match for him. Don't think you can square off with Satan and be victorious. But we must also not overestimate Satan's strength and ability, as many Christians are tempted to do. Satan is a creature. He is created. He is not God's equal. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about those non-communicable attributes of God, his omnipotence, omnipresence, omniscient. Sa- Satan as a creature it does have, has none of those things. He is limited in his knowledge. He is limited in his presence. He can't be everywhere at one time. He can only be one place at one time, and he's limited in his power. Having said that, We should not underestimate his strength either because he is an awesome opponent. He is very dangerous. When we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, we become super conquerors. Now, the second reason, and this is the one that's really going to stretch your mind, why Christians are more than conquerors, is that these spiritual victories that we achieve, while we think they're minor events in our life, are really the very uh, history of the cosmos. While we are creatures of time and we live in a perishing world, these spiritual victories that we we engage in and and accomplish um, are the only things that really last. Things of time, the things that we live in, um, pass away. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away. Matthew 24, maybe verse 35, I don't know. Fortunes dissipate, heroes die, great monuments crumble, works of art fade, human intellect is overcome, emotions dissipate, but not so with our spiritual victories because spiritual victories, these minor victories in your life are the things that impart meaning to the very history of the cosmos. See, I think that's what this earthly struggle is all about. It's not about you having these minor victories over your skirmishes. It is about a testimony to what God is doing, but we just think what's happening to us. And like I I said before, what if this is not about you? What if it's much bigger than that? Back up the truck. When Satan fell, God could have just annihilated him and his followers all at once, right? And don't you ask that sometimes? You know, we have the presence of evil in the world. Why didn't God just wipe out Satan before the rebellion? Because if God had wiped out Satan right after the rebellion, it would not have proved that God's way was right. It would have just proved that God is stronger than Satan. And yet God tolerates Satan, and he tolerates his rebellion, and then he creates another race of beings, spiritual beings, man, and he allows Satan to have his influence over this race, and Adam and Eve join in his rebellion. And so every son of Adam, every daughter of Eve, everyone born of this race is born first guilty because of original sin and with the inclination to personal sin. We have joined in the rebellion. We have joined in this high treason against the God of the universe. But God has reserved the right to call out of this mass of fallen treasonous beings a people for Himself. and This is what Paul is writing about in Romans chapter 8. These individuals whom God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified, all according to the sovereign will of God. These then become the cosmic testimony of sovereign grace, the eternal demonstration of God's love and and mercy and, and redemption. The goal of our warfare is not these minor victories that we achieve. The goal of our warfare is the glory of God. And that is infinitely worthy. It is utterly superior to the struggles that we engage in. Verse 38. For I'm convinced, I'm sure, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you have this List which is basically broken up into pairs. And the point is it covers everything, literally everything. He talks, first of all, about death and life. You know, for some people, death is the, the ultimate dreaded enemy. And we are reminded that Jesus has conquered death. And so the fear of death and the bondage to death is just a shadow, a remnant of once, what once was. But honestly, for other people, going on with life is harder than dying. Life can be... Oppressive and difficult, and a struggle. And it would seem that some, in a case like that, death would be a release. So, death and life both can be two opposite ends of the struggles that we face. In the next category, he talks about angels and rulers or angels and principalities. Once again, he's talking about all of the beings, the celestial beings, and of course, our our deep concern here is not angelic being but fallen angelic beings demonic beings of which satan is himself a fallen angel all of these beings which which seek to destroy us they're part of this created order then the next category has to do with uh, future things and present things look if god has mapped out history And he has because that's what prophecy is all about, that God is revealing that history has already been mapped out according to his sovereign plan. If God has mapped out history and God has determined that all things work together for our good, then the conclusion that we necessarily come to is that everything that God has allowed into our life, even the bad things that he doesn't cause, he doesn't generate, but he uses even those things for our ultimate good because what? Because God is ultimately in control of all of those things. You know, some tragedy happens and we say, well, why did God let that happen? Or why didn't God prevent that from happening? That is a useful accusation against God. Why doesn't He if He could? You must conclude that God in His sovereign plan knows more than you do and that God will use even those failures, even your sins, even the damage that you do to yourself, and He will use that for your ultimate good because God is in control of time, things present and things future. He's the ruler over all creation. That's why we can have full confidence that in spite of all of these things, we can be more than conquerors regardless of what comes our way. Because what? Because God is for us, Deus pro nobis. Alex Murdaugh, he was a real dirtbag and a notorious criminal, and he gets what he deserves and a whole lot more, but so do you. Satan is absolutely right when he accuses you and when he condemns you, but aren't you so glad that the judge of the universe is satisfied? All of those sins, The petty ones and the grand ones have been paid for at the cross. And he will not listen to the accuser. God is for us. Deus pro nobis. Let's pray. God, it is my prayer for this church that our view of you continues to grow and we stand in awe and amazement of what a great God, a big God that you are. Well beyond our understanding way beyond our packaging. And as we back up and view the grandeur of our Father who has saved us, what an amazing thing. May we worship You in a more fitting way. I ask this now for this church, so I pray it in accordance with the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.